read a uh, story by a pastor earlier this week. Tells a story about uh, Saturday afternoon community service day. He said, I was walking down a, a narrow side street in the city of Compton, California, and I was heading towards one of the work sites that was sponsored by a local church. He says, I was six or eight houses away when I passed a married couple working in their own yard. And I paused to compliment the woman on her roses, and she asked me what we were doing down the street. So I told her that we represented a, a band of churches that had kind of united in our desire to serve the city. And then we continued chatting about the radical neighborhood transformation that she had witnessed by some of these simple acts of goodness. During my conversation with this woman, her husband, who had been weed whacking on the other side of the front yard, saw my yellow volunteer shirt. He turned off his weed whacker, set it down, started walking straight towards me and his wife. I will never forget his words. After looking into my eyes, he nodded approvingly towards the renovated house down the street and then said this. I love your heart. Where can I get one like yours? <laughs> Flabbergasted. I simply said, oh, we got our hearts from Jesus and he would be glad to give you one like his too. Before I had to head off, we had a great conversation about the unparalleled gospel of Jesus Christ and his power to change hearts, homes, neighborhoods and cities. As I was doing some work and some study this week in Ephesians, which uh, is where we're going to go for the next few weeks together, I read that story and the light went on. I thought, that's it. In a simple sentence, that is the message of Ephesians. We got our hearts from Jesus and he would be glad to give you one like his too. More than any other book. In the New Testament, Ephesians, I think, is a call to respond to what God has done. And unlike most of Paul's letters, it doesn't address a particular error or, or a heresy. It reads more, if you've spent time in Ephesians, you know that it reads more like an invitation to God's people to recognize the amazing grace of God for what it is. An undeserved, miraculous, life-transforming gift. That if God's people clearly understand, it will drive them to live with a passion that proclaims the presence and the glory of God in this world in which we live. So, on this first Sunday of 2011, a Sunday that we gather together at the Lord's table, seems to me that it's a perfect morning to talk about grace by way of introducing this book of Ephesians. God's Grace, the grace that's represented here at this table, the grace that does loving and very necessary surgery upon the human heart, the grace that, that filled Jesus and overflowed from his life in everything that he said and everything that he did. That's the grace that we're talking about. 
That's the grace of God. And if it is really understood by his people, by us, if we really understand the miracle of God's grace, it will distinguish us. It will set us apart, not in any superior sense. It will simply distinguish and set us apart from the culture in which we live. Our words, our thoughts, our actions will all flow out of a life and a heart that is transformed and seasoned by grace. That's what Ephesians is about. If you've read Philip Yancey's classic book, What's So Amazing About Grace, you remember that it's filled with story after story of people who act in just unexplainable ways because the grace of God has come to bear upon their lives as only grace can. They, they love when no one else does. They forgive when forgiveness is absurd and they give when selfishness rules the day. In uh, the introduction to chapter 3, he titles, A World Without Grace. He tells this story. He says that a, a friend of mine, riding a bus to work, overheard a conversation between the young woman sitting next to him and her neighbor across the aisle. The woman was reading Scott Peck's The Road Less Traveled, the book at that time that had stayed on the New York Times bestsellers list longer than any other book. So what are you reading, asked the neighbor. Well, it's a book a friend gave me. She said it changed her life. Oh, yeah? What's it about? I'm not sure. Some sort of a guide to life. I haven't gotten very far yet. She began flipping through the book. Here are the chapters. Chapter titles are uh, Discipline, Love, Grace. The man stopped her. He said, what's grace? I don't know. I haven't gotten to grace yet. I think of that last line, says Yancey, sometimes when I listen to the reports on the evening news. We live in a world that's marked by wars, violence, Economic oppression, religious strife, lawsuits, family breakdowns. Clearly, our world hasn't gotten to grace yet. Ah, what a thing is man devoid of grace, sighed the poet George Herbert. Unfortunately, says Yancey, I also think of that line from the bus conversation when I visit certain churches. Like fine wine poured into a jug of water, Jesus' wondrous message of grace gets diluted sometimes in the vessel of the church. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, wrote the Apostle John. Christians have spent enormous energy over the years debating and decreeing truth. Every church defends its particular version. But what about grace? How rare to find a church competing to outgrace its rivals. Grace is Christianity's best gift to the world. It is a spiritual nova in our midst, exerting a force Stronger than vengeance, stronger than racism, stronger than hate. Sadly, to a world desperate for this grace, the church can sometimes present one more form of ungrace. My brothers and sisters, I got to tell you, I think as, as, a, as a congregation, I think we do pretty well when it comes to grace. I always tell people that Applewood is a, is a grace-filled place. Grace has a way of getting absorbed and diluted if we're not intentional. And one of the things that I pray for in this new year is that we will be 
determined to continue to be grace-filled, live grace-filled lives. Grace that has seen in some of the specific daily applications and challenges that, that the book of Ephesians will call us to. Things like speaking the truth in love. It's one thing to speak the truth. Another thing to speak the truth in love. Putting off falsehood and speaking truth to our neighbor. Not sinning in our anger so that we do not give the devil a foothold in our lives. Not letting any unwholesome talk come from our mouths. But only what is good, beneficial for building others up. Forgiving as God in Christ has forgiven us. Being imitators of God. Having nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Living as children of light. Those are some of the things that we will be challenged by as we work our way through Ephesians. Oh, and, and uh, then there are those infamous commands at the end of chapter 5. Where wives are told to submit to their husbands. Husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Children are told to obey their parents and slaves are told to respect and obey their masters. What does any of this have to do with grace? Answer, everything. Everything. If we don't get grace, we won't understand what God is calling us to in those specific daily applications of grace. It's a nitty gritty book. And we will be challenged again and again to live lives that overflow with grace at every point of our existence because God's grace has overflowed to us. If you've read anything of Dietrich Bonhoeffer over the years, you've probably read his book. It's classic, The Cost of Discipleship, probably read more than any of his other books. As a pastor in Nazi-controlled Germany, Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Our struggle today is for costly grace. And at the heart of his book, there is an exposition of, here's a surprise to you, teachings of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Sermon on the Mount. No surprise there. See, Bonhoeffer's concern was to understand and to live out what it meant to be a follower of Jesus in a world of evil. To be so amazed and overwhelmed and embraced by grace in a place where temptations to compromise the hard teachings of Scripture were abundant, that the follower of Jesus stayed the course. And in his day, Specifically, he was concerned about the Nazi regime. But here's the truth. Evil is every day. There is something present in every culture. There is something present in every age that will tempt God's people to live as if grace is really no big deal. But in this letter of the Ephesians... Paul makes it abundantly clear that grace is a huge deal. Grace 
is the engine that drives the Christian's life. Now, our text this morning is, is tucked into the middle of chapter 2 of Ephesians. It's probably, I, I would guess, probably the most well-known verses from the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. So we're going to read them together and, and just make a couple of quick observations this morning that's going to, I think, lead us right to uh, this table. So let's stand together, shall we? And let's read these familiar verses from Ephesians chapter 2. Together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. How many have heard those verses before? Hands up. Of course you have. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to discuss those first nine words that we read. They said this, for it is by grace you have been saved. Now, there's a couple of things I'm interested in here. So keep these in mind as you talk for just a couple minutes. What does saved mean? What does saved mean? It is by grace you have been saved. What does saved mean? We use that term a lot. We save work on our computer. A soccer goalie makes a save. People try to save for the future. What does Paul mean when he says, it is by grace we have been saved? And then what does grace have to do with saved? Go ahead. Ask your neighbor. What's Paul mean by saved? What's grace have to do with that? Okay, what do you think? What'd you learn from your neighbor? What's Paul mean? He talks about being saved. Rescued. Good word. Spared. Another good word. What else? Andrew. Repurposed. I like that. I guess that means that our previous purpose wasn't so good. Okay, good. I like that. Jeff. We aren't going to get what we deserve, which is. Okay, that's grace. Saved, spared, not getting what we deserve. Okay, so then that's grace. Grace is not getting what we deserve. That's mercy. What's grace? I think we're splitting hairs here. (laughs) Getting what we don't deserve. How many of you believe in grace? How many of you live Every day with a keen awareness of grace. Put your hand down. (laughs) Cindy, were you going to make a comment? Are you going to raise your husband's hand? Set apart to live differently. Yeah. Certainly what certainly what Bonhoeffer had in mind, you know, that, that God's people ought to be living different lives than than what's going on around us. Zach? I think of grace in the Spirit in Hebrews it says, 
talk about the spirit of grace. Yes. So what the spirit of grace does when we repent and turn to God, it invades our life. And it translates us from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of his dear son. Mm. So to me, grace is something I get my spiritual teeth into. It's the spirit of grace. And it's holy. So I call it the Holy Spirit of grace and truthfulness. This has made grace very real to me, and so I'm aware of it every day. Mm. If I'm not, that means I've quenched the Spirit, and I need to be full of the Holy Spirit of grace and truthfulness. Hallelujah. Yes. So let's get right down to <laughs> And how, every day. how quickly and how easily that can happen each day in the face of, of circumstances. When we get to chapter 2, we're going we're gonna to look at this more closely together. But it's quite possible that the first seven verses of chapter 2 are as unfamiliar to us as verses 8 through 10 are familiar. Almost kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. Paul says some things like this. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. He uh He describes those who do not have the grace of God in their lives through Jesus Christ as dead in sin. He he describes them as followers of the evil one. He describes them as gratifying the desires of their sinful nature. And by, by that very nature, he says they're objects of wrath. Turn to your neighbor and say, did you know that was you before you came to know Jesus? Oh, doesn't that make us uncomfortable? Golly, none of us wants to think of ourselves as that bad. And the truth is, compared to one another, we're not that bad. That's our problem. We don't understand grace because we're looking at everybody else and thinking, I'm living a pretty good life. It's the holiness of God that we're talking about. That is our standard. And that's what Paul is hammering home here. I mean, he paints this picture that is so bleak of the condition of humanity apart from the grace of God, that when he turns the corner in verse 4, you just kind of go, oh, yes! But God, he says, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. Somebody say amen! Yeah! That's the tone of this text. I mean, it is, it is doomsday. And then it is hallelujah. Look what God has done. Not emphasis on what we have done. That's the first seven verses. The emphasis is look at what God has done. Wow. That's what makes grace so amazing. God in his holiness has every right to just turn away. But he doesn't. In his holiness, driven by his love and his compassion, he saves us. Saves us from sin. Saves us from that which would separate us from him for all of eternity. And that happens, Paul says, when we believe When we believe in faith, what God says about us, and when we believe what he has done for us in his son, and we recognize our need. And then I just find this so interesting. Just in case 
we somehow want to think, well, at least I had sense enough to believe. Paul says, no, that is itself a gift from God. Even the faith to believe in Jesus is a gift from God, Paul says, so that no one can boast. Ephesians is a book that will drive home over and over and over again to us the greatness of God, the glory of God. And the whole idea is, my goodness, if we really understand what God has done for us, how then shall we live like grace-filled people who are just going through their daily lives amazed that God would save them? You know, so that no one can boast, I'm convinced that this may be one of the most difficult truths for us to get a handle on. Grace is grace from start to finish. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a 90-10 thing. It's not an 80-20 deal. Our salvation is, is purely grace. I was reading somewhere this week where less than 1% of all of the college football players in America make it to the pros. We look at that and we go, whoa. Well, here's the deal. There is no percentage at all anywhere on planet Earth that makes it to heaven apart from the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Makes 1% look like a pretty big number. When you put it that way, we live in a culture where we're getting, <clears throat> excuse me, we're getting something for nothing is, is hard to, to wrap our, our minds around. We tend to think of it in terms of a scam. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. Um, grace, grace is undeserved. Grace is too good to be true. Grace is miraculous. Grace is outrageous. Grace is extravagant. In this day of, of financial cutbacks, grace doesn't make good fiscal sense at all. You know, if we're not blown away by the grace of God, if we're, if we're not camping in a text like chapter 2 here and looking at the before and after and realizing that, that, that the only thing that I did between the before and after was believe in Jesus and Paul says, Don't, you can't even boast in that because that was a gift from God. If we're not blown away by that, then, then chances are we just don't understand what Paul is saying. We don't understand how undeserving we are. And we might even be thinking, however subtle, that, that maybe we had, had a little something to do with it. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, this faith, is not from yourself. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works We're not saved by works, any kind of works, but we are saved for good works. We are saved to live lives that will call attention to the greatness of our God. The truth is, we live a lot of our lives calling attention to ourselves. And and what, what Ephesians will do, by God's Spirit, opening our eyes and our hearts to the truth, Ephesians will will remind us again, wow. How undeserving, how amazing, how extravagant, how totally outrageous, how absurd is this concept of grace. Yes, yes it is. And, and that's, that's what drives us. 
I want to close with a story this morning as we come to, to the table of our Lord. It's written by Kevin Miller, uh, Executive Vice President of Christianity Today International. He says, when I was five years old, I first fully understood the message of these words. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows if you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good, for goodness sake. Until that moment, I had lived in this childhood bliss in which Christmas was the best day of the year. I'd always believed that the gifts at Christmas time were there because Christmas always came with gifts. You could count on them. But now I painfully understood that if I wanted any gifts at Christmas, I had to be good. It was all riding on me. There was this all-seeing, all-knowing Santa, and there, was going to be, there wasn't going to be any gifts. And if I wanted them, I'd better shape up. But then I thought, how good is good? Can a person be pretty good? Does Santa understand that I have a twin brother, so I have more reasons to be provoked than other kids? It was all so worrisome to me. So I grew up a little more, and I went on to elementary school, In the fourth grade, when I was nine, I continued to learn that all the good stuff in life depends on my effort. We had a reading program called SRA. Here's how it worked. Remember that? Man, I hadn't thought about that in years. It was painful when I thought about it. Here's how it worked. He said there was a giant box of color-coded cards on the side of the classroom. Oh, I remember those. Golly. He says you went and got one of the cards in front of the box, read what was on it, and then answered questions about what you'd read. If you got most of the answers right, you moved up to the next highest color, red, yellow, blue. And if you were good enough and worked hard enough, you reached exotic colors like magenta. (laughs) So moving up in SRA was all that we cared about. Because if you were still one of the lower level colors, red or yellow, you were a loser. Everybody's goal was to move up, to work really hard, to reach the ultimate pinnacle of fourth grade glory, aquamarine. But if you wanted the glory, you had to hustle. We would literally run from our desk to the box. No pain, no gain. You had to be good enough. You had to work hard enough. I grew up a little more. I was 14 years old, and a friend invited me to a meeting after school called Campus Life. There was a guy there who had a beard, which automatically made him cool. He also had a guitar, which made him even cooler. He started saying stuff like I'd never heard before. He said that if you wanted the good stuff from God, stuff like peace and forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, it didn't work like Santa. Or you had to be good or you got nothing but coal in your Christmas stocking. He pointed out that it didn't work like SRA, where it all depended on your being smart enough and good enough and hustling enough. He said there was this thing called grace. God had decided to take all my sin, all my screw-ups and forgive me. Grace had something to do with Jesus dying on the cross for me. All I had to do was believe. This man read from the Bible, which I hadn't really ever read. He read that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This message was different from anything I'd ever heard. It was not what I expected. It wasn't all on me. It was all on him, on Jesus. That message was so freeing that as I took it in, I almost started to cry. But I was a 14-year-old guy, and we don't do stuff like that. The next week, I thought, I better not go to that meeting again because I almost started to cry last week. And I cannot be humiliated by breaking down in front of my friends. But I did go, and I did hear the message, and I did believe, and I experienced amazing grace.